Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello, HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices, and welcome to another episode of HealthCom Central. As you will recall way back from episode two, I'm an advocate for using evidence-based theories and frameworks in your work. One of the things I train people to do is to evaluate the health communication work they're engaged in and how to look across all the available theories and frameworks that are out there to choose something that strengthens their campaign or intervention. Remember the famous quote I shared with you back in that early episode, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. Theories and frameworks can help you avoid mistakes. They can help you be better able to replicate past successes, whether it's your success or someone else's, to save resources, to give confidence to your funders or your leadership, and make it much more possible to publish your work in an academic journal, if that's something that you want to do. So theories and frameworks really help us. Often, though, when I talk to people who are working in the trenches in public health, whether it be local, state, national, even international agencies, I know that it is sometimes hard to know where to get started. You may not have the time or the journal access to keep up with the latest research or to know what's new in terms of theory work. And of course, if you've been out of school for a while, it's sometimes hard to remember the specifics of stuff that maybe you learned once, but then you haven't used ever since. Some of you also, I know, may not have been exposed to some of these frameworks before, even if you do have a degree in health promotion and behavior. I mean, when I was teaching in a college of public health, I would have students flat out tell me that they were not learning most of these theories anywhere except my course. There's absolutely no need to know hundreds and hundreds of health behavior theories cold. That's what Google and Google Scholar are for, for sure. But I feel that you do need a working vocabulary because you need to know how to search for what you're looking for. So often to find those theories, you need constructs. And honestly, a working knowledge of a dozen or so frameworks, the real go-tos that are commonly used in public health can come in pretty darn handy. At the same time, in addition to those go-tos though, you do need to hear from researchers and practitioners who are working with lesser known emerging frameworks that may become tomorrow's go-tos. So in what I present here at HealthCom Central, I'm trying to balance all of those needs and use cases. Today, we are gonna talk about a granddaddy level framework because it's one that you should know because it has constructs that you're going to see again and again. And if you don't know what a construct is, you will in just a second. And because my guess is, even if you learned about it in school, it's just a little fuzzy now. And today's theory is, dun, 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 the health belief model. So one of the first things to know is that the health belief model is one of the most used frameworks or models that you will run across in public health. I've seen some articles that say it's the most used. I've also seen people say that about social cognitive theory, which is another theory we're going to be talking about in an upcoming episode. Maybe the two of them are tied. Who knows? 
At any rate, the health belief model is extremely popular. So why is that? Well, probably because it does a good job of capturing some of the most important factors that are involved in anyone's health decision-making process. It's not necessarily the fanciest, and it's not necessarily the most predictive. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it can give us a basic idea of how different components of a message work together in order to change someone's behavior. So where did the health belief model come from? It was developed in the 1950s by the U.S. Public Health Service, and it was really in response to frustration that government officials had who were trying to eradicate tuberculosis. So tuberculosis, or consumption as it used to be called in the old days and probably in lots of old novels that you've read, is a lung disease that actually used to kill one out of every seven people in the U.S. and Europe. Things were better by the 1950s, but tuberculosis was still running rampant in many populations in America, still something that was causing disability and death. But what was new in the 1950s was that it was detectable, and with the advent of antibiotics, it was treatable. And if it was detected early, you could avoid lung damage. So there was a great effort in the 1950s to screen people who were at risk because a lot of cases don't show any symptoms. And those folks were typically people who were living in crowded conditions, especially crowded sleeping conditions, where it was easy for tuberculosis to spread from person to person. But I mentioned that government scientists were frustrated. And the reason they were frustrated was that they were offering these free screenings that gave people the chance to detect an otherwise deadly disease early and get treatment. And I mean, what was not to like about a free tuberculosis screening? And yet, many people who were at risk were turning down the screenings. This probably sounds very familiar to many of you, depending on what issue you work on in public health. So to better understand what the decision-making process was that people were going through, scientists with the Public Health Service developed the health belief model. And there's an article that is one of the seminal articles about it in the episode notes. So you can take a look for that if you're interested in seeing some of the original thinking around the model. And what they did, they predicted that two things were going to be the most important in a person's decision-making process. First, a person's belief about the personal threat that an illness or disease posed to them, together with a second thing, which was belief in the effectiveness of the health behavior or action. Researchers were pretty certain that it was those two things together, belief about the threat and belief about the behavior, that would predict the likelihood that someone would adopt the behavior of getting a tuberculosis screening. And so the health belief model was born. The early model had just a few components, or as we call them when we're talking about pieces of theory, typically we call them constructs. And that is really just something that we have created. It doesn't exist outside of research necessarily. So the health belief model has just a handful of constructs. And if you want to follow along, although I think you'll be able to do it just with me talking, but if you want to follow along, you'll find an image in the episode notes also. So you have a couple of constructs that are really key to the health belief model. And the first one is risk perceived risk. So it is the risk that the person has in their head. It may or may not be the actual risk 
but it's what they perceive. And this construct of risk, which you're going to see in lots of models, so it's good to become familiar with it, it's divided into two parts. And when constructs have a few pieces themselves, we call those dimensions of the construct. So perceived risk is a construct that's made up of two dimensions. One of them is perceived susceptibility, and the other one is perceived severity. Susceptibility is just how likely am I to get this disease? How likely is it to happen to me? What are the chances? It's measuring the vulnerability that a person feels to a particular illness or disease. And the other dimension I mentioned, perceived severity, is really how bad will it be if I get this disease? Will I die? Will I be disabled? Will I be sick for a couple of days and then a whole lot better? And severity can also extend not just to the physical consequences of the illness, but it could be consequences related to family life or social relationships or financial well-being. So any kind of consequence that would be very bad. So let's stop right here and say, this is such an important construct to get a handle on because perception of risk or threat is in so many models. So you want to think a little bit about how it works. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think for a moment about how people would have different risk levels of different diseases. For example, the common cold is something that we are all very susceptible to. And yet for the vast majority of people, it's not severe at all. So when you put susceptibility and severity together for the common cold, it doesn't come out to a very high risk for most people. Their risk perception is low. On the other hand, if we're talking about something like the Ebola virus, and I realize there are different strains, let's think about the strains that most often make the news, which are the most severe ones. But if you think about something like Ebola virus, it has some very high perceived severity for most people. And yet, most of us are very unlikely to encounter it in our lives. So low susceptibility. So again, when one of these is low, often risk perception overall is going to be fairly low. So most people don't walk around in the United States, at least, or North America, worrying about Ebola virus. And most of them, frankly, don't worry too much about the common cold because neither of them comes at people with both high severity and high susceptibility. Now, let's think about a different kind of risk. Think back to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic and think for a moment about the risk that health professionals were facing. So you had a highly transmissible disease and health professionals were very susceptible to it because they were encountering people with the disease all the time at very close range. So for that group, it had both high perceived severity and high perceived susceptibility. It was a risk that they were concerned about. They had high perceived risk. And that would have been true for other groups during that time prior to having any kind of vaccination and before we got a little bit better at treating COVID-19, that there would have been many groups out there who would have perceived their risk levels to be high because of both susceptibility and severity. Now, there were others who thought differently, but again, it was a function of their belief in either low susceptibility or low severity or both that led them to have a low perceived risk overall. I'm spending a lot of time on this because 
this can be really key. And then combined with what we talked about a few weeks ago on self-efficacy can be a really important thing to be thinking about in all of your messages. One last thing though I want to mention that is relevant to risk and the health belief model is if we were really in the weeds here, we could talk about, okay, if you were able to attach a numerical value to the level of risk, would you add severity and susceptibility or would you multiply them? We're not going to go there right now, but I just want to say that those are two approaches to combining the two things, severity and susceptibility. But of course, in real life, people aren't using numbers typically. They're just going along on gut feeling based on lots of information that they will have encountered, lots of past experiences. And they're making usually instant judgments about the risk of diseases or behaviors or conditions. Bottom line, perceived risk is a really important construct in many frameworks. And it's, it's pretty easy to understand what its function is here in the health belief model. So remember that the other thing, in addition to perceived risk, that scientists felt would be important in the health belief model was people's perception of the health behavior itself. And again, in the health belief model, that construct of perception of the behavior is made up of two dimensions, perceived benefits of the behavior and perceived barriers. So what this really is when we're talking about benefits is the ability of something like a tuberculosis screening or like wearing a seatbelt or cutting back on dietary fat, whatever the behavior is, the ability of that to protect you in some way to cure or prevent an illness or condition, that is the perceived benefit. Perceived barriers, on the other hand, are people's feelings about the obstacles to a recommended health action. What will it cost? Will it hurt? Will it be a hassle? Will it have side effects? Will it embarrass you? There are a number of different things that could be perceived as barriers. In essence, what you have here is that people weigh benefits versus barriers. And so they're sort of doing their own little cost-benefit analysis in their heads, weighing the pros and cons, and ultimately developing some perception about the value of engaging in the behavior. So these constructs, perceived risk, and perceived benefits and barriers were pretty much it early on in the health belief model. Now, some other things have been added along the way, and I want to talk quickly about those because even though what we've just discussed is the heart of the model, there are some other important components to consider. You'll often see the health belief model with a little box at the beginning called modifying variables, And mostly these are demographics. You can kind of think of it as almost the same thing, but it's not going to include all demographics. It's going to be whichever might be applicable to this particular issue. So, you know, we have lots to choose from age, race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, which includes both education level and income level, marital status, household size, whether somebody lives in an urban, rural, or suburban area sometimes their health status, their access to health insurance, sometimes some other cultural factors, could be religion, could be many different things that we would normally classify as demographics, could be part of these modifying variables. And they were added at the beginning of the model because sometimes particular ones can have an influence on a person's perception of risk or their perception of benefits and barriers. When you think about it, it makes sense for many illnesses of course, whether or not you have health insurance, 
or whether you expect that you might be discriminated against in the healthcare system could definitely influence your risk perception. So we got those modifying variables at the front. And then later, two additional variables were added as influences that could again affect or predict the likelihood of somebody engaging in a behavior. And the first thing was cues to action. So that's any kind of prompt that could get somebody to take action. It could be something like even a prompt that is physical, like experiencing pain or other symptoms. It could be advice from other people. It could be media coverage. It could be a reminder you get from your doctor's office. It could be an illness that happens to someone else. Basically anything in the environment that could trigger the decision-making process for someone is a cue to action. And finally, a construct that we talked about just a few weeks ago, self-efficacy. And in the health belief model, that was specifically around the level of confidence somebody has that they will successfully be able to perform a behavior. And with that, they form an intention to either do it or not. What we have here with the health belief model is just to review that people come in with whatever their demographic characteristics are, some of which may be modifying variables that influence the place that they're starting from. Then they form some kind of perception about risk. How likely is it to affect me and how bad would it be? Then they weigh the benefits and barriers of engaging in the behavior that you're promoting. And depending on whether they get prompted or reminded by cues to action, depending on how they feel about their ability to carry it out, they either engage in the behavior or they don't. And that, in a nutshell, is the health belief model. So based on that, as a communicator, you could adjust different aspects of a message and see if you get a different result. Maybe if you frame the health risk as a little more severe, maybe if you address some barriers, maybe you see what happens if you build in more cues to action or you dramatically increase the self-efficacy portion of the message. And then you look to see how one change to any part of the message affects the rest and ultimately affects the behavior. Ultimately, I like to think of a framework like this as being like a recipe. You can always adjust one ingredient up or down. And in fact, that's part of the art of using a theory or framework. At the same time, most evidence-based frameworks and theories are like a baking recipe more than anything else. And if you cook, you may know that there's a certain amount of chemistry involved. You can't just throw out a particular ingredient or wildly change something without risking that your loaf of bread won't rise. But generally speaking, adjusting certain aspects or ingredients up or down can change the effect that you get. And it is the same with any health behavior theory or model. The next question that you have to ask yourself when you look at a model like the health belief model is, is there anything else to a behavior that's not here? Is there anything missing? And this is one of the things I encourage you to do after you select a framework is to really poke holes in it, really think about whether there's something else it needs or something that it does not explain. There are some limitations to nearly every health behavior theory that's out there, and the health belief model is no different. What research has found over time is that while it is great as a descriptive model, describing the potential thought process and many of the factors that are part of decision making, it is actually not always good at predicting 
behavior. And this may be because there are some things it really doesn't take into account. This model and most others, for example, don't differentiate between run-of-the-mill behavior and behavior that is affected by addiction or habit. Now, tuberculosis screening doesn't fall under that category, but there are many, many behaviors that do. And people may have a very different decision-making process for things around addictive substances like tobacco or alcohol, even addictive behaviors like texting and driving or using tanning beds. So if you're dealing with an addiction, this model may not work. Also, cues to action can, of course, include reminders from people or observations of what other people's experiences are. But there's no place in this model that really takes into account behaviors that might be performed only for social reasons. So social norms and the impact of social norms, it's not really here. In fact, there is not a whole lot of room here for any attitudes or beliefs or values that people might have other than the ones that are specifically related to the threat of the illness or condition and the perceived benefits and barriers of the health behavior that you're being asked to engage in. It doesn't include worldview or ideology or other things that might be influential in somebody's decision-making process. Last thing is another big gap here is knowledge. Although it's possible that cues to action could be interpreted as including knowledge or education or exposure to information, that's not really the way this model defines cues to action. And if people start out knowing very little about the situation, this does not necessarily differentiate between people whose knowledge levels are high and people's, people whose knowledge levels are low. There's no place to measure that in this model. So you might be wondering now, okay, well, if this model leaves out so much, why then do so many people use it? There are a couple of reasons for it. I mean, first of all, the health belief model is really pretty easy to understand. Conceptually, it makes sense. It's a great starter theory. I really like to think of the health belief model as sort of a training wheels version of health behavior theory, which is not at all to dismiss its usefulness for getting started thinking about a health behavior, and certainly not to criticize any of you who have used it in the past. The health belief model is a great way for getting the hang of using theory, for considering several of these key constructs that we've talked about today, like risk perception, and for understanding how the different components of a model function and how they might work together. So when I say it's a training wheels version, please don't be insulted if you've ever used the health belief model. It's a great way to explain many behaviors. But if you were looking for a bike to take out on the road for a cross-country trip, you might not want the model with the training wheels. You might want a model with more features. And health belief model is just not going to get you as far as some other theories with additional variables. Or you may need to layer a couple of frameworks together with this to address the complexity of your situation. By all means, you should try to become comfortable with the health belief model, fitting different illnesses and conditions into this model, playing around with the constructs, because that is what will make you ready for the next level of framework and theory. 
which then may do a better job of predicting behavior and therefore a much better job up front of informing whatever kind of campaign or message you design. To help you get to that next level, as a bonus for this episode, I'm actually creating a downloadable worksheet. It will be available on my website. So if you want to play around with this theory, maybe see if you can make your own predictions with it about whatever issue you are working on please download it. You can just go to healthcomcentral.com forward slash health belief model to download. And that link will be in the episode notes too. So I hope if this was a review for you of the health belief model, that it refreshed your memory. And if you are relatively new to public health, or you never had an opportunity to learn about this model in school, or to play around with it, now you know what this granddaddy of health behavior theory looks like. And also what some of its limitations are. The next time you encounter the health belief model, when it's used in a journal article or a campaign, you'll be able to pose some questions about the limitations that it has, maybe to poke holes in what you see. And you may also find a way to improve on whatever you're reading with your own future research project, campaign, or intervention. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the health belief model. Next week, we will be talking about some other aspect of evidence-based public health. So please don't miss it. If you want to get each week's episode delivered to you, go on to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, and it'll be there waiting for you every Wednesday. And please do share HealthCom Central with friends and colleagues. We would love to spread the word. Until next week, then, be well, stay safe, and stay science-based. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.